Good morning. Welcome to the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. For our spring lectures, we do every year have a distinguished scholar come in. And this year, though, it's a little different. Not only do we have a distinguished scholar, Dr. Scott Carroll, also have a special presentation of a, I would say, almost a unique gift to the BMA Seminary. And uh, we'll talk a little more about that in just a moment. You want to remember also that later on in the day there will be another session at 3 o'clock. And we want to invite you all to come back for that occasion this afternoon also. We'll recognize a few of our special guests here today. I'll have an opportunity. have our chairman of our board here from Little Rock area. Where did he go? But Tom Mitchell, would you stand up back there for just a minute? And also, another one of our trustees from our area, Brother Jerry Stacy and his wife, Reba. There's right there. And also, very local trustee for the seminary, Brother Gary Murphy and his wife. They're somewhere here in the crowd. There they are. Wave your hand there for just a minute, Brother Murphy. There, right? there you are. Okay, glad you're here. Also, another special guest. Glad to have the mayor of Jacksonville, Texas here, Mr. Dick Stone. He'll make a presentation in just a little while. And also, we're glad to have a special contingency here from Brook Hill School for their uh, curriculum for the day, led by one of our graduates, Dr. Harold Brunson, and also one of their directors, Mr. Rhodes, is here. So why don't you raise your hand for just a minute so people know you're here. Glad to have all of our special guests today. I'm going to introduce our, perhaps our most special guests today, and they're going to have something to say about their uh, special gift presentation they're making to the seminary. But let me introduce our benefactors today, special guests, Mr. and Mrs. Ken Larson. Ken and Barbara, they met at St. Paul Bible College 50 years ago. 54 years ago. <laughs> While they were starting their business, Barbara stayed at home, raised their five children, their business model. Their business overall is the Slumberland Furniture Stores. They have over 128 stores in 12 different states. Barbara's been very, very active the last 40 years in leading ladies' Bible studies. She loves to see these women being led to dig deeper and deeper into God's Word. Their most uh, special thing she enjoys about that is seeing these women grow in their faith. She has a real passion for mentoring young ladies. They traveled extensively and participated in many ministries all around the world. Just this last year or so, Barbara has made four trips to Haiti to minister with a group down there. But she says that really her greatest joy is mentoring and visiting and grandmothering her 19 grandchildren. Mr. Larson was named the, in 1995 the Retailer of the Year for the National Home Furnishing Association, which is the highest award that the peers in that group award to one another. He's been an active leader in many nonprofit organizations, been on the board of directors and navigators. Also, he's chairman of the board at one time for the Evangelical Free Church of America. And currently, I suppose the thing that's uh, most impressive to me is that there is a group known as the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability that sort of a watchdog group voluntarily you, these 
this group will look and see if, if you want to know if it's where you're sending your money is going to the right kind of ethical cause, that's what that group does. And Brother Larson sits on that council. We appreciate his service there. They currently live in Florida, but more likely than seeing them in Florida, you would see them in Israel or Russia. And even more likely than that, you might see them in a large international airport someplace going to one of these ministry opportunities around the world or going to see their grandchildren, one of those two things. We're glad they're here with us today, and I'm going to invite them to come to the podium. They're going to have a little something to say before they present this special gift to the seminary. Thank you. Sounds like good people. <laughs> I'd like to meet them. <laughs> well, it's great uh, to be here at uh, BMA Seminary. And uh, we just left uh, Minnesota yesterday afternoon, and uh, it was around zero. So we're even happier to be here today with the with the weather that uh, you, uh, you've you gifted us uh, with. Um, it's our privilege today to gift uh, an old Torah that you're going to hear more details about in, uh, in just a few minutes. And uh, Barbara and I would like to give you a little background about how we got involved in this ministry. Uh, we are not theologians, and yet uh, there's a very strong love for God's Word that we have. So let's start with Barbara, and you can kind of get us going. I grew up in Chicago, the, right in the middle of the city. So um, when I visit little towns, it's like, oh, I don't wonder what it'd be like to grow up here. I grew up um, living in an apartment and never knew a person that owned a house. So it was a very different growing up. It was very ethnically um, uh, diverse, and so I love uh, that part of of my history. Um, the high school that I went to was 98% Jewish. And so um, I think that's where I became acquainted with Jewish people and had a love for Jewish people. And I think God honored that. One of the books I read when I was uh, 11 years, or two books that I read when I was 11 years old was one, The Diary of Anne Frank, and just the incredible story of survival and she ultimately lost her life, but left this wonderful legacy of a book that we can read. The other book was Through Gates of Splendor, and it was about the five martyred missionaries in um, Ecuador. And I think God honors what we read when we're children, and then somehow we see it play out in our lives. And so I believe that the love for Israel, the love for the Jewish people, is now coming through to fruition in some of the ministry that we're doing um, around the world. <clears throat> Great. One of the uh, questions that's always asked is, how did you get interested in Torahs? And I'm going to try to explain that. There's several uh, events that are taking place almost simultaneously, so I'll do my best to kind of go back and forth. But uh, several years ago, to celebrate our 50th anniversary, wedding anniversary, <clears throat> we decided to take our family, our 19 grandkids and spouses and, uh, and uh, children, uh, to Israel. And uh, it was uh, just a marvelous experience. Everyone was able to go. And uh, to help us, we had just this uh, 
outstanding uh, guide who uh, is a seventh generation Jewish person. There are not many like that in Israel uh, because of all the people moving in. But we wanted a New Testament expert. This guy is an Old Testament expert. And so a good friend of ours, the uh, dean of the seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, Bethel Seminary, uh, David and Sandy Clark, uh, agreed to go with us. So leading up to that, uh, through a connection with Josh McDowell, who many of you probably are aware of, writer, apologist, um, speaker, evangelist, uh, written, I think, now 130 books, we had a chance to travel with Josh in South Korea. During that trip, he described acquiring an old Jewish Torah uh, from Poland. And uh, I won't get into all the details, but he said several things. One, it's the most effective tool he's used in more than 50 years of ministry, communicating the reliability of God's word and, and why it's essential to our life here today. Along with that, I was able, and Barbara and I were able to meet Dr. Carol and Denise, uh, who are experts in Torahs. And that's where he purchased the Torah that he travels with. He made one other statement, though, which then came around full circle, which I will tell you we did buy a Torah, uh, actually two, and we gifted one to Bethel Seminary, to thank them for allowing uh, Dr. Clark and his wife Sandy to travel with us. They were very excited. They did an event similar to this. And during the event, Dr. Carroll was describing at the conclusion uh, how to take care of the Torah, some unique facts about the Torah. And at that point, I remembered, standing with the Hebrew professors, what Josh said. And he said, Ken, you'll find almost no Hebrew professors that have ever read from a Torah. So I asked the three professors, have any of you ever read from a Torah, been with a Torah, or even looked at a Torah? And the answer was no, 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 none of them. And I was shocked. And I, I remember turning to Dr. Carroll saying, Dr. Carroll, how many seminaries in the United States have a Torah? And he said, I, I can't think of one. And I remember saying, why? He said, I don't know. Maybe nobody's thought of it. Well, over time, when you're married as long as we have, nonverbal verbal communication is clearly more effective than words. <laughs> and most of you have received looks and all of that, and you don't need words, right? We looked at each other, and we instantly knew what we were saying to each other, which was maybe we're supposed to do something about that. So we gifted another Torah to Trinity Divinity School in Chicago, and through Scott's help and Todd Hillard, who's here today, we bought a collection of Torahs. And so for the last uh, couple of years, we've had a tremendous opportunity to be on campuses like this one and talk to great people like are here uh, gifting uh, Torahs. So maybe, Barbara, you want to talk a little bit sure. about the... What? Well, the transition into why we're here. <laughs> exactly. Well, it is exciting to be on seminary campuses. This is our 20th uh, Torah that we pre 
19th. Yeah. Well, close enough. <laughs> He's a numbers man. Yeah. I'm like, well, whatever. But um, anyway, to see the excitement of people as they approach the Torah and God's holy word and how it's been preserved is just awesome. And I'm on Facebook with Brian and Tom, and I just love how Brian is using the Torah. It is so fun to open that up and see he's doing another thing with the Torah. And so I'll close with a story about William Randolph Hearst. He was a great collector of art. And he saw a piece that he absolutely had to have. And perhaps you've heard this story. But it is to the point of what we're trying to say. He, he had this man go out and look all over the world for this piece of art. And they, he looked and looked and he came back and he said, Mr. Hurst, I cannot find that piece. So he said, go out again. You have to find it. I have to have it. And he, he looked and he looked and he looked and he came back and um, he came back and he said, Mr. Hurst, I have to tell you something. You own that piece. It's in your warehouse. And our goal, our goal is that this piece will never be put in a warehouse, that it will be used just as Brian's using it in so many wonderful ways. We want you to use this Torah and to study it and share it and bring it to other people and bring people in. So it's our privilege to be able to present this today, and God bless you as you study God's Word.
happened. But again, it's a uh, church calisthenic or whatever. Yes, uh, you know, Mayor Jacksonville, it's my privilege and honor to be here today to uh, offer this proclamation to recognize the uh, Washington's and their uh, wonderful gift that they've made to the uh, seminary here. And I'll do this now. Whereas Barbara has led uh, Barbara Washington, has led Bible studies for over 40 years, seen one drill in the faith, and has ministered in Haiti four times in the last two years. And whereas Ken has been active leader in many nonprofit organizations, including as chairman of the board of the Evangelical Free Church of America, and serving on the board of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, and whereas Ken and Barbara Washington travel to see many ministries all over the world and having raised five children, now enjoy spending time with his grandchildren. And whereas Ken and Barbara Larson are making generous donations to this historic forest grove to the BMA Seminary in the community of Jacksonville, Texas. Now, therefore, I, Dick Stone, mayor of the city of Jacksonville, <coughs> on behalf of the community, express gratitude and appreciation to Ken and Barbara Larson for their continuing service to our community and the world at large, helping others grow in their faith. Awesome. Um, this letter there, February 2016, from Mayor Jacksonville, Dick Stone. We are about to enter another little phase of the ceremony today. We are going to dedicate or name this scroll. Dr. Atterbury, would you like to come and do that? As the dean, I'd like to express uh, appreciation for all the constituents of the seminary, our faculty and staff and uh, students and trustees. We do appreciate it uh, for the Larsons doing this for us. And during our planning and preparation for this uh, dedication service, uh, we understood that it's appropriate to name a scroll, uh, a Torah. And so we would like to announce the name that the BMA faculty, seminary faculty, has chosen to name our scroll. Uh, as you know, the Torah holds a great historical significance. Dr. James C. Blaylock is completing 50 years of service to the BMA Seminary as our keeper of records and history. In addition to his college and seminary days, uh, degrees, excuse me, and more than a half century of pastoring churches, Dr. Blaylock's record keeping has included the following positions. He's been involved in the seminary's Keller Memorial Library as a director or assistant director for uh, going on 50 years. He's been the long time, spent a long time in service as clerk for the Cherokee Baptist Association. He served as editor of the Baptist News Service, initiated the Baptist biographies, and has maintained other BMA archives. He's also authored... Uh, writing books on the histories of three local churches. All of those historical in nature uh, fit very well with the historical significance and keeping of our Torah. Therefore, the BMA Seminary faculty has chosen to name our scroll the James C. Blaylock Sefer Torah. And Brother Blaylock and his family are here. Would you come up, Brother Blaylock?
I'd like to invite your family to stand. So if the Blaylock family would just stand, we'll yes. just, just see them. So again, congratulations. Our lecture speaker today, again, again, this is our, our spring lectures. Our distinguished lecturer today is Dr. Scott Carroll. Dr. Carroll holds a Ph.D. in ancient history from Miami University, M.A. in Christian backgrounds and early Christianity from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He completed postgraduate studies at the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati and works in a number of ancient languages and specializes, though, in the study of ancient manuscripts. Dr. Carroll has built the two largest privately held collections of Bible and biblically-related manuscripts in the world, the Van Campen Collection and the Green Collection. Together, these collections are valued at over a billion dollars. And he's created exhibits for these kinds of things around the world, including a special exhibit at St. Peter's Square at the Vatican Library. He served as professor and research scholar at a variety of institutions, including Gordon College and Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, Baylor University, and Tyndall House at Cambridge. He is a distinguished lecturer at the University of Nigeria, where he directs a program that's unprecedented in being able to have local scholars come and handle these ancient manuscripts for just the leading teachers and doctoral students there in Africa. Besides his love for his wife, Denise, we're glad she's here with us today also, his children, and a growing number of grandchildren, but uh, one of the greater passions in his life is mentoring students in these difficult areas, specialized areas of biblical manuscripts, seeing them grow and be able to become the next generation of Christian scholars. Welcome, Dr. Carroll. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure being here. Um, thank you very much to the seminary for their uh, gracious hospitality. And uh, we're, uh, we're eager to be with you on this uh, important day. And uh, congratulations to you, Professor Blaylock. This is uh, what an awesome privilege and uh, great legacy. And so one uh, well-deserved through years of service and all. Um, and I, I want to thank the Larsons for their uh, unswerving vision and uh, their also their uh, gracious generosity both um, on uh, behalf of the many seminary campuses that they've ministered to. Uh, we were uh, at, actually at Purdue University just a few days ago. And so they're not only seminaries, but they're also secular universities that are being in, impacted um, in, this, in this way. Uh, we come from, my, my wife and I are from uh, Michigan, and we actually live on the coast of Lake Michigan. People who are in Michigan use their hand as a map, and that's our lower peninsula. And Detroit is over here, and we've been desperately trying to give that to Canada. But, uh, and, and, then, and then we live, this is Lake Michigan, and Chicago's down here. We actually live right over here, and if you can tell by the map, uh, we're probably getting hammered with snow right now. And so uh, e echoing the Larsons, it is nice to be here. Uh, it, is a, it is a real passion of mine to work with mentoring and training uh, students 
and uh, the work in Africa is is a is a major one. And actually, tomorrow evening, uh, I go for we go um, quarterly to conduct workshops and and give uh, opportunity to African scholars to handle uh, ancient papyri and ancient scrolls and things that they would otherwise never have any opportunity at all to have contact with. And so that's a, that's a real passion of ours uh, as well, to echo that uh, words from the president. Uh, my, my goal today, uh, this morning, is to introduce you to the Blaylock uh, Sefer Torah scroll and to tell you about some of the unique features in it, to, uh, to describe it to you so that you uh, may, if you have opportunity to see it, in the future, or you're working from it, faculty or staff here, you, you know what you're looking at and are familiar with it. Um, I, I speak to this with the uh, amazing privilege in my background to have worked with, uh, I approximate around 10,000 scrolls. And so I've been blessed to have opportunity to work with many. And uh, while there are many people out there that we're blessed to work with that are more highly specialized in the study of the scrolls themselves. We've yet have had many pass through our hands in our own preliminary uh, study of these outstanding uh, manuscripts. I, I work with other manuscripts of the Bible and of classical world, ancient papyri and early medieval texts and things like that. That's kind of my world is working, identifying, discovering these things and working with them. I have to say that uh, there is nothing more impressive than than a Torah scroll. Uh, they're over, uh, oftentimes over 100 feet in length. Uh, I believe that yours is a, a, around 120, if my memory serves me right. Uh, you know, multiple columns and handwritten, and uh, it's overwhelming. There was a reference made to an exhibit at the uh, in St. Peter's Square with the Vatican Library. Uh, one of the opening areas of that exhibit was on the Torah scroll, and it had selected a handful of scrolls, and they were displayed, many of them kind of propped upright in plexiglass stands. And uh, some Jews from Rome coming into this exhibit were so overwhelmed by the presence of the Torah scroll that they fell down in the room. And we had to have people in the room help them up so that they wouldn't encumber the traffic of the many people that were there at the exhibit. So these are very, for someone that works with early papyri of scripture and early classical texts and medieval manuscripts and all sorts of things like that, there, there is nothing, I think, more impressive than the Torah scroll. So it's just overwhelming. Of course, as you'll learn here, it's written, it's written on uh, skin, and it's written on, in your case, it's calf skin. Uh, the first time that I had opportunity to hold a handwritten text of scripture written on skin, on parchment. Uh, I opened to the Gospel of John where it mentioned that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And that became such an over, overpowering image of the, the transmission of Scripture. I know that's talking about the Incarnation, but it had a double meaning for me, holding this manuscript written on flesh also. And in the same way with you all, I, I would hope uh, at the end of our time today, we'll watch the time carefully. Uh, we'll culminate actually by uh, respectfully um, rolling the scroll out and having select people from the audience hold it so you can see it end to end. 
Um, that's not typically how a scroll is intended to be seen. It's intended to be seen column by column as it's read in very select passages um, o- over the course of the calendar year in the Jewish synagogue. So to roll it out in its entirety is something that uh, may never have happened before for this Torah scroll since the time that it was written hundreds of years ago. So par- part of my plan today is to talk with you a little bit about how this was uh, actually uh, created and unique things about it. And um, if you have questions, uh, by all means, uh, write them down. And if you're here for the second session, I could probably in that format be able to handle those questions and I'd be very desirous to do so. If you can't be here, please pass them along to someone in the faculty and uh, they'll be able to pass them on my way. Uh, This afternoon... I'm going to be talking about the traditions, now it's very different, the traditions about how the Torah was made. So we have certain traditions about how they were made, how they were put together, how they were corrected. Today you're going to see one. This afternoon we're going to talk about the traditions that relate to it. And, uh, and we'll weigh out uh, which traditions are um, actually practiced or not. And then I'd like to end this afternoon actually talking about some apologetic values of the Torah scroll. So how can it be used in apologetics? How, what can we learn from it in terms of, and I'll touch upon some of that today uh, for those who will not be able to be back uh, this afternoon. So that's my intention. Your Torah this morning, this afternoon, more generally how Torahs were made and uh, to give you an idea from that. So uh, without any further ado, uh, let me just start with some general observations here about Torahs, and um, some of this we'll, we'll handle this afternoon, so I'll be brief with these things. But uh, uh, let, let, me, let me, in fact, because a lot of that will be covered, let me, let me just dive to um, a pie chart here, giving you an idea of how many Torahs there are in the world. Uh, my, my suspicion is that there's somewhere above 20,000 Torahs that survive in the world today. Now, um, a number of those are actually in modern synagogues and they're being used um, today. And they're modern Torahs, so about 10,000. Um, at uh, Purdue, uh, to a huge crowd of students and faculty of uh, probably several, several thousand were there in their, in their community. Uh, a Jewish guy who reads from scripture, a professor came up to read from the Torah, and it was no earlier than your Torah. And he said that he reads from the Torah around the world, and it's a great privilege for him. And uh, when he came up to read from it, he said that he had never read from a Torah that old. And so uh, when you're talking about having something a couple hundred years old, it's really old, for Taurus because many of them were destroyed during the Holocaust. So the very fact that it survives, we don't have the story of how this survived. My, my suspicion is it's from Germany, and its story of survival must be an incredible one. To have, uh, when, when you're talking about um, uh, a crystal mock in, in 1938, where hundreds of synagogues were burned, in German lands, and the Torahs were taken out and burned as well. These things were carefully protected over time, and uh, you become part of that legacy. 
here at the seminary, which is an incredible story. So with, with regard to the survival of the Torahs, uh, you can see a very thin sliver of Torahs um, survive by, um, by date. These would date uh, the very earliest ones are before the 16th century or earlier. And so a very small number survive. Uh, Mid-18th century to present, about half of them date from that time period. And yours would fall into this sector here, um, which is getting early. Um, and we'll, we'll describe research being done on it. It may, in fact, turn out to be slightly earlier. Um, we can talk with you about the things that we do to date it. Um, but that is an ongoing process and will continue with scholars that we have the privilege of working with over the course of the next few months. Um, so, gives you an idea of uh, how incredible, uh, incredibly early it is and important and significant uh, given where, where it comes from. Uh, briefly, this, uh, the skin that's used is calf skin. And uh, sometimes they used sheep and they used other kinds of skin as well. But calf skin was predominantly used, especially in Eastern Europe. And the scrolls that come from Eastern Europe are called Ashkenazi scrolls. And they, uh, a lot come from Poland and they come from Romania and all sorts of places. But um, not only did they fall underneath uh, the cruel regime of the Nazis, but they did as well uh, under uh, communist uh, uh, Soviet communist regime uh, persecuting uh, the the uh, Jews that survived uh, survived the Holocaust. Um, so, uh, but my my strong suspicion is that this is a German Torah, and um, it was written with um, on calfskin. The calfskin is uh, very carefully prepared. It um, you learn this afternoon. It has to come from a kosher animal. It's slaughtered in a certain way, and uh, so on and so forth. Um, this is the back of the skin. And uh, there are patches to reinforce where the seams are. Uh, the weakest point of the Torah is actually where it's sewn together. And so where the different skins are sewn together. My, again, not having the, uh, the, the uh, spreadsheet in front of me, my guesstimation is there are somewhere around 50 animal skins that are placed together. And uh, to give you a sense for that, um, you might barely be able to see on the edges of the skins, they did little pinpricks, little tiny holes, very hard to see. And then they use those to line the skins. Actually, the skins, when you go out in the hall, they're, they're carefully lined. And it might look upside down to you if you're not familiar with Hebrew. But because Hebrew is written right to left, the letters are all opening up the opposite way. They're opening up toward the end of the line on the left-hand side, and that's the end column. And so um, that's and they, another idiosyncrasy is that unusual feature is that they wrote underneath the lines, not on top of them. And so this is common with some medieval manuscripts as well. So as we go along here, I'll show you some examples of that. You can very faintly see the lines here on the back of this, uh, of, you, of your Torah, uh, coming to uh, the little pinholes, which usually are not seen because they're on the back side of the Torah itself. All of this is 
a natural function of how the Torah is done. We're looking at the end of the Torah, so the end of Deuteronomy and the what is called the Song of Moses, which is here in the uh, narrow columns, which is the common way of writing that, which we'll see later. But you'll see that there are um, letters that are extended. And uh, that, was a, that was a common feature so that the scribe can end up where they need to end up and on some cases, they have to end up on a half a line. They need a space somewhere. You can see these spaces that are in here. All those are laid out by tradition. And um, you, they have to be lined up appropriately. And so the scribe, if they're writing too small or too big, they will um, extend letters and in order to get things lined up where they need to get them lined up. Um, other features, as I look at this, these uh, blank spaces have to do with um, readings and sections of readings. You'll notice maybe uh, that there are no verses. You'll notice there are no chapters. Um, instead, they read by section. And for people who are familiar with Hebrew, uh, there are with a Torah scroll, uh, there, are, there are no vowels. So they still make Torah scrolls today. Uh, we have a friend who that's his job. Um, along with doing some other things. Uh, he's made 20 in his career. Uh, there, there are no, uh, there are no uh, vowels that are placed underneath the consonants. And then another feature that you find in other Hebrew manuscripts is that you'll have notes that are written, they're little dots, and they're written above the letters because when the Torah is read from, it's chanted. And so it's sung by someone called a cantor. And so those have to be memorized for your bar mitzvah. You have to memorize that in your reading. And they're not, the clues aren't left there for on the Torah scroll. Now, I'm familiar with some Torah scrolls and some traditions that are no longer used in the synagogue. And they'll put some marks to help with the practice of the reading of the Torah scroll. But uh, they're not with the ones that are official kosher Torah scrolls. I should say to you that um, this Torah scroll, the technical name describing it is Pasul. And Pasul means that it's no longer, it can no longer be used in the synagogue for the reading of scripture in their practices. The reason being, uh, it will have, as I'll show you here, uh, things that need to be corrected over time. Uh, letters crack, uh, things happen, and they, they get to a point where they decide, we'll just copy it. The cost of having to do that is too great. So they retire the Torah. Now some really hyper-Orthodox traditions will actually bury it. But in other cases, it's placed in a room called a Geniza, which is a storage area. And so the, the, your Torah has come from a Geniza. And... Um, Maybe I should just briefly describe to you how it got to you. The, somebody, uh, they, when they left Germany um, after World War II and survived somehow, maybe didn't survive in that synagogue, but came back to the synagogue and found the Torah scrolls there, uh, they, they didn't want to leave them there. So instead, they emptied the Geniza and they bring those items with them when they immigrated to Israel. 
And what they would do then with those items that are no longer functional, no longer useful, can no longer be used, they would bring them to Israel and then they sell them. And this still goes on today, where people come in to the people that we work with in Israel, have a very large private collection, and people will come in off the streets, coming from some foreign land, or they have some collection that's come to them, and they, they seek to sell them. Now, they'll try to sell them to a synagogue, they'll try to sell them to the government, they try to sell them to the National Library, um, but usually they end up in private hands. And the money that goes to them is really an act of charity. And it helps those people get started in their new country. So um, what has happened with your Torah, in case someone wonders, how did you get this? Has this come from, uh, was it taken by the Nazis? Has it been stolen from a synagogue? Or some kind of suspicion like that? And the answer is no. It's come from a Geniza and was brought by some unknown family to Israel and sold to a private to a Jewish collector in Israel and then ultimately was sold to the Larsons and the, the Larsons gifted it to you. So that's its story and where, where it came from and so forth. Um, Alright. Uh, you, can, you can see here the uh, seams where they're sewn together and actually the style of the stitching is part of what we use for dating something, believe it or not. The style of actually how it's stitched together changes over time. And those are very small things that we look at. The most important thing that we look at is the shape of the letters, the style and layout of the Torah itself, and, and uh, things of, of that nature. Um, on occasion... A, a Torah scroll will have what we call replacement panels. A panel is a skin. And what will happen is they'll be damaged from uh, moisture, maybe there are letters and things that can't be corrected. So they go to the Geniza, to that storage area, and they find a sheet that directly overlaps with the one that they're looking at. So they've got to find one that has the exact same number of lines in all. These things vary. So if yours is 42 lines, a 54-line Torah won't work. So they've got to get the exact kind just right. And then they will stitch it in. And so you, you can see here that um, this is slightly, this is slightly uh, taller. And you can see the colors are different. And the handwriting is different. But this has been added as a replacement panel. And it, it, it lines up exactly what they had to do here in order to line it up. This has more lines. You can see, do you see here they've squished two lines together up here? They've had to rewrite a line up here in order to correspond to this. This has more lines, but the columns are narrower. So they had to get this all lined up. And, and so when you see that inside your Torah, don't be dismayed by it. Don't look at it and say, gee, this doesn't have all the columns. Uh, this isn't uh, you know, original or something like that. It took great originality for them to figure out how to make the replacement there. And it just shows that these things occur more commonly in, uh, with communities that are poor communities that need to make do with whatever in order to keep their Torah functional. And here with this one, it's an old Torah. They, they wanted to keep it in use. It's, it's like the, the Torah of their great-grandfather. And so they'll do anything to keep it in use 
with uh, the tradition. Oh, it reminds me, back on Pasul, when a manuscript is no longer functional, it can be handled and touched. And so when you see me handle and touch it, when you have opportunity to handle and touch it later, that's proper according to the uh, most liberal understanding of what can be done with the Torah. But we do so with great respect and with care for the manuscript and all as we handle it. Um, so a little bit there with replacement panels. Uh, this is the opening of Genesis here. And it always opens with a large letter so as to announce the, uh, the beginning of Revelation, the Revelation. Sometimes the entire first word is uh, capitalized, but a large letter is used, and this is so um, announces the beginning of Genesis. Uh, large letters are used on the Torah. The, um, I notice with the first Torah, the large one that's out there, if you go to the very end of it on the far left and you count in four columns, there are a number, there are two or three large letters that can be seen. And large letters are used in an interesting way in the copying of the Torah. Um, sometimes they're to announce an important passage. Here in this case, it's to announce the Shema. It always uh, begins and ends with uh, capital letter letters. But then sometimes they appear in other places. Like here, this it might not seem like it to you, but this is actually a large letter here. And um, they have to do with important passages of one sort or another. I'll return to this in a second. But um, there are examples of large letters that occur all the way back in medieval scrolls, medieval books. This is an important medieval book called the Leningrad Codex. And uh, the use of large letters is the same as the use of large letters in modern scrolls. So it's doing it the exact same way. And this is uh, 700 years earlier all right, uh, than your Torah. But they're doing similar large letters, doing it the same way, in the same practice. Um, actually, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are examples of large letters there as well. So um, uh, this goes back to uh, the time dating around the time of Christ and even before the time of Christ. So the point is that this practice, when you see large letters, like in your Torah scroll, they're practices that have been uh, carried on for thousands of years, where they're do, doing it the same way. And I'm going to show you other examples of that um, here in a second. Um, there are also uh, cases of dotted letters, and you can see it more easily here. There's just one dotted letter over here. But you can see it, these letters here um, actually have dots. Now, these other features that are above the letters, those are tittles, and they're decorative. And how it's done varies from place to place and time to time. But there are regulations about which letters can be decorated with tittles. When Jesus said, not a jot or a tittle will pass away from the law until everything's fulfilled, the jot is the smallest letter of the Hebrew al alphabet. The tittles are these little decorative things. And if you go out on the Torah out there and look here, you'll see them. And uh, let me paraphrase what Jesus is saying. Not the smallest letter or the least significant, tiniest aspect of the Torah will fall away until everything's fulfilled. 
So that's what he was talking about when he was talking about the tittle. Because we don't really have any idea. It's only speculation about what they mean. But this is another case where their tittles were used uh, for thousands of years and have still been practiced and still been used. You see, and I'll return to this theme in a second here, but if I were arguing for the authority of God's word and its transmission, I could say this Torah is 100% accurate with any other given Torah that your, old, that your Old Testament comes from or what have you. But I would even drill down and say even the tittles and the large letters and these other aspects are the same, which is a powerful indication of the care with which the scribe uh, copied the text. All right, so these dots go above words that there's a question about their spelling. They don't respell them. They don't spell them different. They keep them the same way, and they just put dots above them. And these traditions go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls as well. Um, they also had small letters, and um, it's hard. It's probably hard for you to see, but you've got this Aleph here. It looks like an X. And you've got it right next to another X. The other X is big. This one's a little bit smaller. Um, and there's one. There's a, a hay over here that's a little bit smaller than the one that's there. Well, our people look for these things, and we know where to find them. And the point is that not only did they do large letters, but they your Torah. They, they also did small letters throughout. And these things are done with accuracy. They're done with dependability as they've been done for uh, thousands of years in the copying of the uh, text. Uh, the books are separated by four lines. And you'll see examples of that. Not, this is not opened up to that. But, you, but later, or when we pass it out, if you look down in front of you, you may see an area that has um, four blank spaces. The four blank spaces is the separation between the different books. And that's commonly done. Um, here we have the Ten Commandments in Exodus over here. And then in uh, Deuteronomy... And uh, here it looks like they've made a change, and I'm going to talk about these things briefly here, but they had this laid out, but they wanted to put the word no, uh, not over here, and so they've moved, they moved it over. You can see very faintly the erasure that's there. But a special layout to the Ten Commandments so that it'd be mindful. And uh, in fact, uh, this Torah is opened up to the parting of the Red Sea and the Ten Commandments up here. And many of the ones in the hallway are opened up to the same places. So you're looking at the same thing. Okay. Um, different kinds of corrections that are made. One kind is to make a patch where actually they erased all the way through the skin and uh, they would cut it out and then put in a patch like you see here. And, um, and then they put the words that were patched in between there. Um, you'll learn this afternoon, it was prohibited to put the uh, divine name, various names for God, but the divine name Yahweh in a patch, especially if one of the letters overlapped outside. But here you have Yahweh in a patch. And so there are times where they just did what they had to do as they copied the text and were very pragmatic about it if you think about their circumstances in Germany, undergoing persecution, poverty, and just trying to make it happen 
with the scroll that they have. And there are examples of that. You see here as well uh, extended letters and then some very tiny ones in here as they're trying to get the spacing right. All right. Uh, there are other uh, cases here. Here's a patch. But down here, do you see this down here? The, uh, the scribe skipped a line and they had to put it, put it in. Now, I, I think that some Christians think that if a Jewish scribe made a mistake, uh, that the uh, Torah was thrown away. Now, we'll talk about those traditions this afternoon. But in fact, with our going through your Torah, there are about 600, I think 580 corrections. And don't let that in any way daunt you about the authority of the text. Because the fact of the matter is, when you look at 580 corrections, you should rejoice that there are 580 very careful, minute things that are done to make sure that it's 100% right. You know, instead of, well, there are 580 problems. They're not. There are 580 fixed problems. All right? And there's a big difference. So, but these things weren't done magically. These things were done, I, I would, where are my high school teachers in here? Where are you? Raise your hands, high school teachers. Okay? So, for, for um, my university classes, for about 30 years, I had them, as a practice, hand copy ancient texts of Scripture. And I told them if they made one mistake, I'd fail the whole class. Well, they worked as hard as they could. Uh, and, uh, of course, they made mistakes, but they corrected them to make sure it was right by the time it got into me. And so, such is the case with, with this. In a case like this, uh, the person skipped a line. And what would happen is they would see the same word when they turned their eyes away, and then they would go down a line and they would miss a line. That's very common. But you can see here that someone's corrected it. So it's with these sorts of things that occur with your Torah scroll that I rejoice. I say, this is awesome, because this shows that the, the community was involved in making sure that a, that a text was correct. Uh, by and large, when a, when, a, when a mistake was found, sometimes it was done while they were just reading it and someone would pick up on it. And it was the community was involved to make sure that the text was accurate. The community. Boys, women, men, listening carefully to the Torah. And if there was an issue, the smallest issue, had 30 days to fix it. It was immediately taken out of commission in 30 days. And we'll go into some more of this this afternoon. But I'm just showing you some aspects in your own Torah. Um, as far as these sorts of things that I've seen, I've never seen anything more extensive than 10 lines corrected. Just as a preamble for this afternoon, this whole notion that somehow the Bible, especially the Torah, is made up of things that have been shifted around and this passage placed here and this word placed there and all, it's inconceivable with the way they copied texts. You couldn't do it. So in some ways we look back with scientific superiority and look back at this process of handwriting and all and say how antiquated, how fraught with mistakes. But the fact of the matter is that's not the case because of the care and the editing that took place in the process of it all. 
So don't be daunted by some things like this in your Torah. I think they're awesome and show the life of the manuscript and how it was cared for. And for the Hebrew professors here, you may even experiment with trying to determine exactly what went wrong and what was corrected. And that can be determined as well, usually. All right. Um, there are also, uh, you'll find in your Torah, uh, these are erased corrector's marks, where such in a case like this, someone has made a little round thing, and they've indicated that a correction needed to be made here. And so, and they've erased it then, and you see a faint image of it. So you actually have in, and this was probably done by the friend of the scribe. A scribe, by the way, is called a sofer. And so the friend of the scribe is writing, it's given to him, he goes through to edit things, and fine, fine corrections are made. But um, there was a process in place. And uh, over here you can see uh, very faint lines. Sometimes it's a circle, and then somewhere else it's a dash, and somewhere else it's... And it shows that there's several people involved in the process. But this is all showing the life of this manuscript and how it's cared for and kept alive and made accurate over time, which is... Uh, Thrilling. Yeah, big erasure here that starts up here yeah, that you can see. Uh, you see here, you know, some lines that were skipped and they're squished in there. Typically, it's about 30 letters per line, but here we have compressed a whole number of them because um, passages were missed. But corrected. Uh, there are examples from the Dead Sea Scrolls from later manuscripts here where you can see the erasures underneath and the Dead Sea Scrolls where corrections are made. Um, sometimes corrections, they wrote the correction above the line, whether it be a letter or a word. Your manuscript doesn't have any of that. They've done erasures and they place them right back in the line where they belong. The reason is because if they're placed above the line, sometimes they could be misread. And they're not read correctly. So doing it this other way, though it doesn't look as good, um, it's not as clean, um, ensures a careful reading of the text, that it's read properly. Okay. Um, cracked letters that get light and cracked over time are darkened. You can see ones that are darkened here where they've actually taken an ink pen and written over them again so that... Um, no confusion would be made over cracked letters and all, and I'll give some examples of that this afternoon of how that can happen, actually. Um, they, uh, very, I'll be done here in just a second, and we'll roll the scroll out. But they also employed an, edit, an editor's mark where they took a, a letter N and they inverted it upside down and made brackets out of it to indicate that they thought this verse goes somewhere else. They would never change it. They would never think of changing it. They always do it with the brackets to indicate it, it, they believe it goes somewhere else. This has gone, the tradition for this goes all the way back. This is the Leningrad Codex of 1000 AD, and there they are. So, same tradition. And this is uh, the tradition in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, for thousands of years, they use this practice. Would they ever think of changing the verse? Never. So it gives you a reason of confidence in the text and how it was uh, carefully preserved over time. Look, there are also very special layouts, one of which is called the Song of the Sea, 
uh, Miriam's song, and uh, we have, it's like the Israelites going through the parted sea. It's also shaped like a brick wall to give confidence in the assurance of God's deliverance and the trust in that. And so Exodus 15, uh, most of the scrolls in the hall are rolled out to that place so you can see it in the same place um, from one to another. Um, This is the Song of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, and I uh, had mentioned this uh, earlier. Uh, Actually, the layout, the Song of Moses and the Song of the Sea, uh, this is from 1000 A.D., is the same. So not only are the large letters, small letters, brackets, dots, things like that done uniquely the same, but so is the layout. The layout is similar for thousands of years. So as yours is, your Torah is a window to the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, apart from Isaiah, are small scraps. This is an entire window to the scribal tradition of the ancient world. And think of it that way. So examples actually from the Dead Sea Scrolls of the layout of the Song of the Sea and of the Song of Moses. This is all that survives of those two passages. So here we're back on the Song of the Sea and uh, the great promise that it invokes uh, for you all and uh, as the Torah is alive in your community uh, to remember that uh, God's Word is true and trustworthy and has been passed along for thousands of years with traditions that are the same, uh, with corrections that are done with great care, and you have every reason to be confident in, uh, in the, uh, the Word. So this is my brief introduction to the Blaylock Sefer And uh, what I'd like to do is I'd like to have the high school students um, stand around the outside, please, making a U from about halfway around. Come on, high school students, let's go. (laughs) Make a U, stand out uh, about, you know, a foot or two apart from each other. Don't, no, spread out this way. Spread out this way, going all the way around. On both sides. Please leave your water bottles or pads or anything in the queue. Don't don't hold your bottles, please. And my wife and I are going to help with uh, rolling the Torah out. We'll ask you if if you're on a seam that you carefully hold it on the top and the bottom because that's where it can fall and problems can happen. That you don't that you don't mess with the ink. Keep your hands off the ink itself. Um, but, and respectfully hold this, remembering the story of how it's made us alive. Tell us why.
Okay, high school kids, you're holding in your hands a tradition of hundreds of years that survived the Nazi Holocaust. And it accurately, accurately copies God's Word in the ways that I showed you and was protected by the community over time and somehow has found its way to Jacksonville. And I hope that you'll remember, like I did the first time I held... Um, we, you know what? We can take some more. Are there any more high school kids? We can use a couple more on this side. I, I hope that you'll remember. Oh, you've been up here definitely Yeah. I hope you'll remember the opportunity that you have to do this, and that it'll give you a greater appreciation for God's word um, as as you move forward in life. Look at that. Look at that. Okay, in just a moment we're going to roll it back up again. And when when we do, if you'll be very careful to stay in your station until we get to you. And as we're rolling it up, if you'll kind of lower it and hold it per- perpendicular to the ground. So hold it parallel. No, the other way. Parallel. Okay. It's, it's not supposed to be. No. Yeah, a, a point that uh, Ken Larson's made about the end of Deuteronomy here with Dr. Blaylock. According to Jewish tradition, that's supposed to end on a half a line. And they've ended on a whole line. Sometimes the person who's... Every Jewish male is supposed to write their own Torah, but they don't have the expertise to do it. So they pay someone to do it for them. Or a group of men pay someone to do it for them. And then they take the opportunity to write the last lines or the first line, depending on the dating of it. Um, so in one way or the other, they've gone all the way to the end there, and they should not have, but that's how they've done it. These things vary. It's a point I'll make this afternoon. They're not all cookie-cutter the same. Uh, they're all unique and vary, yet the text is the same. Okay?
scroll back. It's going to be remember to come back this afternoon at three o'clock. The rest of the lecture is excellent, Dr. Carroll. Really appreciate what he said today. And we're going to have Dr. Parsons and Dr. Rickett this afternoon. They're going to practice a little bit. They'll give us a reading from our Torah this afternoon. Let's stand together. When I was making our introduction a little earlier, I left out a few people. Glad to have Dr. Edwin Frank, former president of Jacksonville College, here with us today. Dr. Philip Bryan, my predecessor here, president of the seminary for 16 years, I believe. Isn't that correct? I'm trying to outlast it. I'm going to be able to or not. Working on it. Also, the library here at the seminary where the Torah will be housed is the Keller Library named after the first president, Dr. Gerald Keller of the seminary. We're glad to have one of Dr. Keller's children here with us today, Ms. Jerry Sue Cleaver, and her husband, Dr. Cleaver, one of our instructors. And Dr. Cleaver will dismiss us in prayer. And then we want you to take your time and go back through and enjoy the display once again. Dr. Cleaver. Holy... Thank you. 